Guys, we're going to get started. Well, okay. <laughs> Good afternoon. My name is Alana Rocha. I'm the multimedia reporter for the Texas Tribune, who in part covers mental health issues and veterans issues. And I'd like to welcome you again to the 2017 Texas Tribune Festival and this panel, Next Steps on Mental Health. I will introduce my esteemed guest in a moment, but first I would uh, like to acknowledge that this panel is supported by Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute and the Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. Uh, just to note, those sponsors and uh, donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or the questioning. Um, I will introduce, like I said, the, the panelists in a moment, but I'll just explain the format in case you guys aren't familiar with the festival or haven't been to any other panels today. Uh, it's an hour-long discussion. The first 40, 45 minutes or so, I will be moderating with the, the different guests, and then the last 15 to 20, we will open it up to questions. So I will give you a five-minute warning so you guys can line up at the mics here in the audience and uh, go from there. Uh, please silence your phones if you haven't already, and if you are tweeting this event, uh, the hashtag is TribFest17. So we will uh, get going. I will start uh, on the end uh, with John Burris. He is the CEO of MetroCare, largest provider of mental health services in Dallas County, serving 52,000 adults and kids each year. He, a licensed psychiatrist, Dr. Burris currently oversees the center's operations and psychiatric care to nearly 50,000 patients a year. Seated next to him, is State Representative For Price, who represents Amarillo up in the panhandle here. A fourth generation Texan, Representative Price is serving his fourth term in the Texas House. He chairs the House Public Health Committee and headed up the House Select Committee on Mental Health in the interim. Next to him, Sharon Butterworth. She's the chairwoman of the El Paso Behavioral Health Consortium, which brings together executives from healthcare, government, and nonprofit organizations to improve the local mental health behavioral health systems. She's worked more than two decades in public service and travels here to Austin frequently to meet with lawmakers about implementing policy. And finally, last but not least, is uh, Chairman Garnet Coleman, a Democrat from Houston. Representative Coleman has represented the state's largest city since 1991. In that time, he's gotten several measures to improve access to mental health services passed. Uh, Coleman is the senior ranking member of the Public Health Committee as well as Chair of County Affairs. Please take a moment to welcome the guests. And in light of what we've seen happen in, in recent weeks, uh, as you know, our, our program here at the Tribune uh, Festival has changed slightly in light of Harvey and the devastation it's brought to the Gulf Coast. Uh, we know that people affected um, by the rainfall, especially in Houston, um, will be dealing, you know, after they get through this first aid period of, you know, being fed, sheltered, worrying about those essentials, uh, you know, they might be suffering mental health uh, conditions in, in the future. I guess I'll first start with Representative Coleman and ask you, how is your area doing it and how did they fare? Well, uh, all around the city, clearly in the county, there's real damage. I mean, we're talking about 700,000 people. Uh, part of my district, which is along Clear Creek, that's some of the first pictures you may have seen, South Belt, Ellington, Scarsdale area that when the Clear Creek overflowed, that, that was, came out as banks. I think people, because they've lost and went literally everything, usually you don't lose your cars, but when you lose your cars and you can't get anywhere, it doesn't matter what's there because you have to find some way to get around. And um, so I think people have, don't realize yet how much this has affected them. 
uh, because those who can go right to work, they've done that and that pushes it out, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but when they find out that the money that comes is not enough, uh, I think you're going to see a lot, of, uh, a lot of heartache and people with a lot of need. And I think the children don't know yet that they have had mm -hmm. trauma from, from this, particularly those that have to change schools. Right. Dr. Burris, before moving to Dallas, you worked in Houston for 30 years. Is Houston equipped to handle, you know, in the years and months to come, what could be an influx of people into the mental health system? I, I'm not sure anybody's equipped to handle what just happened to Houston in a, in a way. It, it's beyond anybody's ability to really to comprehend, just as um, Representative Coleman said. So the, the city's going to have to be ready to, to uh, to accommodate to people who, whose lives have changed forever, whose lives have irreparably been uh, altered. And that's going to show up after their stamina starts to fail, after they're back, getting back to their teens good, but then they'll start to realize, just as we heard, that their life is now completely different than they imagined. So two, three, four, five weeks from now, two months from now, three months from now, there's going to be a need to be mindful of those kinds of things, just as there is with, it. this happened to the entire city, but trauma happens all the time, so you need to be ready for this at, at the system level all the time. Chairman Price, uh, the past two sessions, the state has uh, increased funding significantly for mental health services, um, starting, I guess, the, the 2015 session, immediately following Sandy Hook, where several children were killed um, in a shooting bipartisan support, what has the state gotten for that money? I know in 2017 it was kind of people testified in measure for you know what they got and what the progress they made. And so where have you invested the dollars and, and again what has the state gotten for that money? That's a good question. We've seen a lot of momentum build off of uh, you know going back really to I think 2013, 2015 um, and, and certainly this past session and what you saw um, really translate from ideas and investments into even, you know, you can look at some quantitative measures. You can look at, for instance, wait lists, and you can look at how many people are being treated and, and what kind of programs are being instituted. And I think we've seen real progress and, and broad reach, you know, to a degree that hasn't existed in the past. But even more significantly that a lot of people may not connect the dots on, what we saw, and I give credit to everybody up here, uh, as well as so many folks that are out in this audience. I see a lot of familiar faces who are stakeholders and advocates and folks who have been working on policy for a long time. You saw momentum build off of 2013, 2015, and those investments translate from ideas to legislation and legislation that's passed and is now going to give opportunities for treatment and policy expansion and, and ideas and innovation that hasn't existed in the past in this area to this degree. And I think there's just an in increased awareness. There's a, um, there's a more um, willingness to discuss behavioral health. Um, there is, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of momentum right now that you know, I think is a very positive thing because as more folks uh, tend to become more knowledgeable and comfortable and aware we will see continued investment, we will see more programs, more ideas, and that will translate into better patient outcomes, and so I'm pretty proud of that. You mentioned the idea of stigma, and Chairwoman Butterworth, you focused um, in part on increasing workforce, the workforce who can help people who are suffering from mental health issues. And you were saying when we spoke earlier this week that, I mean, there's a stigma even going into the workforce as well, attached at least. There's a lot of negative bias um, throughout.
And um, I think that education has a lot to do with eliminating that. I think as we all become more comfortable, as we, as we know more about mental health and we're more comfortable talking about it, I think that we will begin to see um, that negative bias go away. I mean, you don't have a, a child residential treatment facility in El Paso. So you've had to get creative with, with your dollars and with technology. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, the Behavioral Health Consortium brought together providers and, um, from across the um, community, and we worked with the LMHA and CPS and our private providers to do extensive um, wraparound type services, if you will, to um, take care of these children, to try to keep them in their homes or at least within the city so that we don't um, have to send them hundreds of miles away to an RTC and have been um, relatively successful. We've, I would say there's very few children that have um, had to leave the city over the last 15 months. Um, we know though the reality is that thousands probably maybe tens of thousands of Texans get their mental health care behind bars uh, in the criminal justice system. Um, Chairman Coleman, you know, that help can come, it often comes with prescription psychotropic drugs, mm -hmm. um, but it can come, you know, with diversion through drug courts, um, reentry programs, but therapy is another that you've been focused on trying to expand. Right. So what's important is if we divert people and then get them to uh, the, where they need to be, uh, to get that therapy, uh, that's really important. And one of the bills that passed this session that I think is important for people who have persistent uh, mental illness and they're deemed disabled is the fact that we will only suspend their Medicaid benefits right. instead of get rid in them. Mm -hmm. And that's going to show great promise. But what's also happening is we have not touched every mental illness. Mm -hmm. uh, we have not touched those, what I call the disorders where it's cognitive therapy that needs to change behavior and we only use medications really to, to deal with symptoms. So that's stuff like a borderline personality disorder, uh, you know, uh, eating disorders, even to some degree post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, there are things that we can do, but we have to be able to do all of it. And, and I think that, that we've done some good things to make sure that we don't have people in county jails unnecessarily, but we have to fund services at the local level so we can divert people, just like we've done in Bear County and other places, divert people to treatment uh, and not go to jail at all. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Medicaid and we're on the heels potentially of the Senate voting on the GOP's repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act. Um, Dr. Burris, in the mental health community here in Texas, what are you making of what could be passed and how healthcare could change as we know it? it it's, it's pretty easy to equate it as, when you talk about severe and persistent mental illness, as goes Medicaid, so goes treatment. The two are, are inextricably linked and so we have to be mindful what that's gonna do to people who really have very little resource in many cases to apply. So I'm gonna go back to your question a couple ago. The, the work that, that these gentlemen have done and the rest of the legislature has done to even in times of hardship to add to what we're doing for mental health care will pay off. It is and will continue to pay off by being able to stop some of the, uh, the incarcerations that shouldn't be happening, to stop some of the uh, special school and special education programs that didn't need to happen in the first place. And so 
those are things that are critical and need to go on. If we change Medicaid, it will change those things. It, there's no way about no two ways about it. It has to change if it changes. So I think we as a state ought to be very mindful of what that does. We talk about workforce, and I, I moderated a panel last year at the KLRU studios, who some of you might have attended an overheard taping uh, this weekend uh, at those studios. But afterwards, uh, uh, Garnet Coleman, you were on that panel, and afterwards some guidance counselors in the uh, audience came up to me and said, you never brought up school guidance counselors. I think oftentimes now they're seen as, you know, test proctors and not maybe, you know, that first line of defense. I know there's that mental health first aid type uh, legislation, but how, how can we change that or how pivotal are guidance counselors, um, Chairman Price, in being that first line of defense as far as when it comes to children who might be suffering from trauma? Well, if, if I have any regrets, and I don't really have many from this past session in this area, <laughs> but one of them was that we did focus a lot uh, between the 84th and 85th session on various areas, and one was, was children and mental health, both the juvenile justice, the criminal justice side, but also just an effective treatment um, and, and uh, an outreach and education side. And so when we looked at, at that, um, we did develop a bill, um, HB 11, that, that did not pass this session, not because I think it had a lot of controversy, but because it was pretty late into the, into the session when it was actually ready to be um, addressed and voted on by the committee, et cetera. So what I think is important with respect to children, um, especially in the public education setting, is uh, it is somewhat of a challenge for the uh, mental health world to communicate with the public ed world and vice versa because they kind of speak different languages and so sometimes uh, the public education world can be resistant to to discussing some of these, these issues they don't want their children you know parents don't want them labeled and i would totally agree with that they they want them to be treated they want options but what we saw and the bill started to flesh out is you can educate uh, educators, you can educate administrators, you can identify at a young age, you know, red flags or things that might need to be followed up on in various settings. You can get innovative, like Elgin or Huddle ISD that starts to incorporate mental health with their physical health clinics, even on campus or at a district level. And they treat the children, they treat the parents of the children, because we all know that some of the children that have issues may have mental health issues that they're suffering from because their parents have mental health issues mm -hmm. that they're suffering from or haven't given them the treatment that they need or there's trauma involved. And so there's, there's a lot of innovative things that folks are doing across the state already. Mm -hmm. uh, what we would like to do is marshal those, those good practice and best practices to a, to a point where we can, we can educate our uh, administrators and educators. We can incorporate in our health curriculums in those schools that actually provide health, and it's not mandatory, but those, those, those districts that choose to teach public health or health in their, in their system typically teach physical health. Um, if we can incorporate mental health into that, which I think is, is the way medicine is going, is an integrated model of care, we would, we would far and away um, do good things with respect to raising awareness, raising the education of folks, uh, both parents and students alike, those teachers that see those kids day in and day out. And um, I think there's, there's great promise with, with respect to what we can do that's already being done on small levels. It could be scalable. And I believe that, that we'll see uh, telemedicine possibly play a large role in this because we will have the ability to have better access. And um, with technology, I just think that's going to be a, a, an important component to this whole thing. 
and, and I know this isn't the question you asked me, but before I just want to <laughs> add uh, with, with respect to Chairman Coleman and Dr. Burris, um, SB 292 and SB 1326, both two bills that passed this session, have to do with jail diversion. I see a lot of people taking notes, and so if, if anybody wants to look those up, one had to do, 1326 really had to do with the, the criminal justice reforms that will be important because they will uh, keep a lot of folks out of county jail that don't need to be there, and then 292 will also extend what has been very successful in Harris County with regard to jail diversion mm -hmm. statewide, and it was appropriated um, $37.5 million for um, uh, counties all over the state of Texas, all 254 can participate. So I just want to throw that in because I think a lot of people are very interested in what, what may uh, be available with regard to jail diversion. I think that's important. So I'm, I'm going to, you have to thank, we have to thank Chairman Price and Speaker Strauss for being forward thinking uh, on all of this. And I think we can get your HB 11 and trauma stuff done in the next session I, because I think people didn't really understand what uh, this trauma thing, sure. you know. But I just wanted to say that, so sorry Thank about you. interrupting. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> um, in, in discussions with you all prior and in past sessions, telemedicine has really become the key. And again, you all brought it up uh, in our kind of pre-conversations till today. Um, Chairman Price, I mean, that's, that's a key investment uh, mechanism. And, and Chairwoman uh, Butterworth, you use that as well as far as to get kids uh, in your area help. Correct. Okay. Um, we don't have the child psychiatrist in our area that, um, to serve our population, so we do depend on telemedicine. Our LMHA uh, contracts for um, child psychiatrists um, via telemedicine. And going, but when we talk about children, um, I agree with Chairman Price in that we, we kind of took care of the adults in this last session, and I'm really looking forward to that um, energy and, and momentum going forward that we can address issues for children. I'm talking about school counselors, I think that we expect them to um, not only take care of maybe behavioral health needs with our children, but also all the academia type counseling, and I'm not sure that, that they're fully equipped to do both, nor are they compensated or have time to do both. So I think that is possibly something we need to look at. Also, um, not every school or school district is going to be able to do school-based clinics and so forth, but I do think, and so I don't know that we can at least right in the near term, expect our schools to begin to address our mental, our, our behavioral health issues with our children. But I do think that we can um, educate our educators, if you will, to be leaders in leading um, the children that need um, behavioral health therapies and counseling and so on and so forth, lead them into um, those and lead them to those resources. So I think that um, with some concerted effort on all of our part, we can make that happen. Well, we know, um, you know, one of the most vulnerable, vulnerable groups is children who were in the Child Protective Services foster care system. Um, Chairwoman, when you had talked about that, I mean, I guess how you get those kids' attention and, and work with the state in order to address those issues. Well, we, um, we have, and now we're, El Paso, I think, is a pilot project for um, 
contracting out those services, and they're, I don't think that's quite um, a done deal, if you will, yet, but it's certainly in the works, and it will be interesting to see how uh, private providers, or a private provider will uh, provide the, the case management and the services that these children need. But I know that um, the community and the providers within the community are committed to continuing their um, communication and their collaboration to provide the services, as many of the intensive services as are needed to try to keep these children um, in, in their homes or at least in a kinship relation um, so that they don't necessarily go into foster homes. And um, I'm very optimistic this is, this is going to be um, a, a good way forward for our CPS children. Another aspect um, that's maybe not as talked about is suicide prevention. Uh, is the state investing in either awareness or therapy or, or ways to go about that? Well, uh, oh. I think that, I <laughs> yeah, go ahead. this is my turn. Okay. <laughs> um, I know in not this session, but the session before. So 2015, there was the bill passed for um, requiring um, education for freshmen at all Texas universities uh, regarding suicide uh, prevention and education. And um, the state is, we've not always been um, eager to spend dollars on prevention, but I think that we're finding that that is our, the best value for our dollars, and hopefully going forward, we, those will expand and we will continue in that direction because I think um, prevention dollars, especially at the children's level, will, um, will definitely pay off for us going forward. Chairman Price, were you going to add something on that? Or? Uh, <clears throat> I was going to add that, that well, one of the bills that, that did pass that um, Sharon mentioned was the, the bill that made resources, or made it required for institutions of higher education to make those resources known on their website, which sounds like a very you know, easy thing to do and kind of a small thing, but um, you know, we did understand that, that there is a vulnerable group of young adults who are students in, in colleges and universities all across the, the state. And that is you know, a stressful time for a lot of folks as well as a, a, a vulnerable time. And if you are in, in need of um, help because of a crisis, well, um, you may not reach out to a clinic or you might not drive or go see some third party counselor. You might not know who to ask. So having that information at your fingertips that you can look up very easily that's required to be um, on the university's website, I think was a step in the right direction. We actually strengthened that again this session. And then with respect to veterans, and that's one area where we've mm -hmm. seen particularly high and alarming um, rates of suicide, um, you know, I think it was um, important and I was glad to see the legislature fund fully SB 55 again. Well, I mean, I say again, it was SB 55 in the 2015 session, the 84 session. That's $20 million. Now, it's all, not all of that would be suicide prevention, but it is veterans' mental health. Mm -hmm. So what we are doing there is providing an ability for programs to reach out, you know, whether it be peer support or other programs that are proven effective in local communities all across the state just for the veterans' community, and I think that will translate into reducing the rate of suicide in that community. 
We also have um, school districts um, within the county that have provided suicide um, prevention training, not only for teachers and counselors, but for the students mm -hmm. as well. Um, we have nine school districts, and I don't know that all nine of them have um, participated yet, but I know that they're, um, that, that is beginning to uh, filter through the, the school districts because it's not just at the university level or at um, with our veterans. I mean, we need to be concerned about our young folks mm -hmm. in high school as well. You all are different parts of the state, different uh, industries, if you will, or different roles in, in addressing mental health issues. Uh, Dr. Burris, how good is the communication? We spoke of, you know, educators and mental health professionals, but I mean, across the board, how well do governments communicate as far as, you know, El Paso's pilot program? How does that trickle down to other areas to know best practices? Well, it's, it's certainly a work in progress, and we're, it's always going to be. We're always going to struggle to, uh, law enforcement doesn't speak the same language that mental health does, and they don't speak the same language that education does, and so we're going to work on that. But to me, the theme that what you're hearing is we have for forever, basically, as a state, allowed things to get to you know, DEFCON 1 before we do anything. So people end up in, in child protective custody, people end up in, in jail, people end up in the psychiatric hospital after a crisis, rather than being able to start to identify and overcome the denial and stigma that keeps people away. And then even if you overcome all that, do we actually have access where they can get to something? So I think we're, we're getting better, and the steps we're taking, although they're iterative and incremental, they're, it's getting better. We're being able as a society to do those things what the title of this is what's next i think we're going to keep doing that the, the school's not going to be the deliver the delivery vehicle for intense mental health services but they play an, an indispensable role in being able to educate and identify and funnel people to the right kinds of places where they can get those services and then telepsychiatry it is we shouldn't talk about it in a future tense it is right now the way of the world mm -hmm. in texas 70 percent of our 254 counties don't have a psychiatrist so you you've got i think again just the all of these things are indicative of a of a community a society in texas that's looking the right direction on the topic of speaking the same language, um, it's kind of it made me think of peer-to-peer -peer support and how effective that can be, especially in the veterans community, because they speak the they speak the same language when it comes Absolutely. to you know military talk or whatever it is. But there are challenges to that, right, uh, Chairman Coleman? As far as I guess in in speaking with you guys again, um, not everybody wants to share their story or, or be that example for their you know fellow man or woman. No, everybody doesn't. But I can tell you. It is really good to have a conversation with someone who's experienced the same thing you have. And that means a whole lot. Because we don't have enough people uh, who literally we can turn to and they understand. Mm -hmm. Because mental illness is not easily explained. Because people, you know, that age old thing, just snap out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't. This, that doesn't work that way. Uh, so the peer support, I think, is probably the most cutting edge piece and most important piece of actually helping people get to a point of managing their illness or recovery uh, and keeping them there. So when I was in the hospital, it was done this way. It was called a relapse prevention plan. Mm -hmm. And you pick the people who were supposed to, you know, people who would tell you, you, feel, you better get your stuff together. <laughs> and then you had people who would say, well, I understand, you know, and, with the, and so you had all these different people to help you mm -hmm stay on track 
and you had people people that allow you you allow them to say is everything okay so these are the types of things that have now been put into peer support mm. and, and 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 that's 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 crucial and so as long as we're training people to identify certain things and we have peer support and we're continuing to strengthen that area mm. uh, uh, I, I think we'll be better off as a state and a nation uh, because of the lived experience I know I had to learn that one I'm a lived experience. Well, for people, <laughs> for people who aren't familiar, if you're comfortable, what is your lived experience with, related oh, to mental health? I have a bipolar disorder, and um, so I've been hospitalized. I take, I take medicine, um, uh, you know, antidepressants and uh, things to deal with manic areas. It, you know, it's tough. Uh, but the medications do work, and if you have a good, uh, if you, I have mild, you know, now they, they can be really bad for people. But they're good medications and also uh, counseling uh, from a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, or an L LPC, is, uh, that all, it all works. Uh, so I, you know, I encourage people to, to understand that we know the statistics, 80% of people get better, um, that you can get better, and I, I hope to be an example of that. But I have very bad days and very bad weeks and very, <laughs> very bad a lot. But I'm here. And you're exactly the reason why, how we're going to eliminate all this negative bias, because you set the example. Thank you. Here, here. Um, kind of coming full circle a little bit, um, you know, talking about the money, talking about Harvey. We don't know what the 2019 session is going to bring. Chairman Price, do you think that we'll see an increase in mental health funding in 2019? Kind of crystal ball question. You're on the record. Wow, I wish I had a crystal ball. That'd be great. Um, you know, I've, I think we have seen a growing recognition and trend over the past several sessions where that funding has steadily risen um, and covered more areas. Right now, we fund 18 different agencies um, for behavioral health that spans five different articles of the state's budget. And so it is, um, it is a complicated area of funding because we don't want to duplicitous, you know, supply of services across agencies or anything, but we want to do it right and, and effectively. So I do anticipate that we will continue to dedicate and prioritize resources to mental health. I think that that is something that has been refreshing about the budget debates in that you know it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat it has not mattered if you live in rural Texas or urban Texas and never mattered what region of the state you're from uh, everybody has sort of circled the wagons and said we recognize there's growing issues and problems across the state let's let's pull the same direction to move the needle the right direction now we don't always agree on what that may look like however that discussion's a lot easier to have than a discussion about just getting funding prioritized to begin with. So I do anticipate that we'll see that. One thing that, that I hope will continue um, is a, a real desire through the grants that were recently um, funded. You know, we had, I mentioned the uh, funding of the SB 55 grants again, and we've got the HB 13 grants, which is $30 million, and the SB 292 grants of 200, I mean, excuse me, 37.5 million. So all this money together is a tremendous amount of resource that's available to local communities. 
and they have been dying and screaming and hollering to get resource help and, and to have the legislature step up and do that. And so with that having happened, I really want to see just very intense competition for these dollars and a lot of interest and innovation because I'm afraid that if that does not happen, and I'm sure it will because there is just so much demand, but if it doesn't or there's not enough um, you know, activity, then if we come back to the legislature in 2019 and say we need more or we need to prioritize this money, a lot of folks will say, say well, see, we did that, but if there wasn't the desire and there wasn't the interest or activity, then maybe we should put that money somewhere else. I mean, that will be an easy fallback position for some members to take. So I'm really encouraging counties, um, local uh, governmental entities, nonprofits, everybody that's eligible to apply for these dollars to really recognize that now, because now is the time to do it. Mm -hmm. And if they can um, get those applications in, there's a lot of resources available for projects all across Texas. And I think we'll come back to the 2019 session with momentum and with an understanding. And as we see outcomes improve, it won't be a hard thing to convince people to do to invest in our mental health. You foresee another interim committee to kind of study the progress of the investment so far? We will, we will have interim charges and, and Chairman Coleman and I serve uh, on the same public health committee, which obviously has jurisdiction over the implementation of some of the bills that were passed. So absolutely we'll be following up on the implementation of a lot of the bills that passed this past session so that we understand and know, and I'm sure that folks at the Health and Human Services Commission are listening, um, we, will, we will make sure that things are being done correctly the way they should be on time and in a manner that's going to have the desired effect so that we can go into the 19th session saying, here's what we invested in, here's what it looks like, and now let's build on that success and move forward. So I really am very optimistic about what looks what lies ahead for us in 2019. Chair, and I think... No, go ahead. I was going to cut I you off I think we before. have to, um, as community members and providers and, and so forth, we have to be innovative. And I know that it takes matching grants to for House Bill 13. And, um, but for communities, what, 250,000 or less mm -hmm. in, population. Po in population, it's only 50% match. Now for, you know, the communities over 250,000, it's 100% match. But you can look at in-kind. I mean, it doesn't have to be hard, cold cash. Um, be creative. We have got to use this, these funds and be successful so we can go for more. <laughs> real, real quick, uh, just a kind of program note, in about five minutes we're going to open it up to questions. There are two mics here in the audience, so if you want to start lining up, you're welcome to. Uh, go ahead. Well, one of the things I wanted to mention along the same line as the grants that were put together in the legislation that Chairman Price did is the Regional Rural Healthy Community Collaboratives. That's a lot to say, uh, but they're earmarked directly to rural areas. Uh, who can come together to do exactly the same things that we've been doing in urban areas. And so there's a matching component, uh, but I think there's some places that are ready to go. And if we don't provide the ability for people to create those collaboratives everywhere, uh, regionally, uh, we leave people behind. And we, we just we can't do that. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy that was in the Sandra Bland Act. Mm -hmm. And also telemedicine. Uh, and telemental health was in the Sandra Bland Act to use in the jails and telemagistrate. So we know that, that telemental health works. And I have to give credit to, uh, 
to former Governor Rick Perry is because he started some telemedicine, psych telepsychiatry uh, in schools, a pilot, uh, before he left uh, the governorship. So, you know, we have people who are really trying to make that work. Real quick, Dr. Burris, uh, as somebody who's outside of government, what would your wish list item be as when it comes to mental health for uh, the 2019 session? Well, I think continuing to expand on the services and the programs that have already been started. So there's already any number of extraordinary programs that are out there and working. How do we bring them to scale? You know, so how do we do enough of it for the population growth, for the population we already have, for the people who are newly impacted? So I'm, I'm thrilled with the way, having been in mental health in this state for decades, I'm thrilled with the way things are going. And kudos to the people who are doing it right now. And I, I just want to see it keep happening. We're not there yet. There's no finish line. Mm -hmm. But we're getting, we're doing better. Well, let's give kudos to this panel. That's my portion. <laughs> We have a lot of people in line to ask questions. I'm going to do what I, I always do, interrupt people. That's why we need to keep Speaker Strauss as Speaker of the Texas House. <laughs> Real quick, for the sake of time and the number of you in line, uh, we'll ask for questions, not stories. Um, and we will start with this gentleman here. Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Greg Hanch. I'm with NAMI Texas. Um, I'm really glad to hear a lot of the conversation uh, today focused on early intervention, prevention. Uh, it's no secret that making a strong effort on the front end uh, prevents long-term negative outcomes and, and high costs uh, to our system. So I want to ask Dr. Burris, um, I'm aware that MetroCare has an, uh, an early onset uh, program for intervening for people with, uh, who are experiencing psychosis, early onset psychosis right. and schizophrenia. What can you tell us about th that program and has it achieved positive outcomes and is this something that could be replicated in other areas of the state? Yeah, so the, the psychotic, il the illnesses that come with a psychotic component are some of the most severe conditions that are in all of mental health care. So getting to them early is a, a huge benefit. It's a huge impact on avoiding the long-term problems. So these programs should be in place everywhere because these are, this would be the equivalent of having your most severely ill people in, in care first. It's hard to do in some of the smaller places because the volume, the, the nuance at psychosis is so limited in volume that it's hard to create a program. But it should, we should make our efforts to make it available across everywhere in the state because if you do something early for these folks, you can avoid a great deal of long-term morbidity. Um, our program, we're measuring and looking for outcomes. We're a little early to have much in the way of palpable, uh, tangible outcomes, but the programs that are like ours that have been done in Long Island and elsewhere have shown really important results. So I'm looking forward to see that we can do the same. Thanks. Thank you for your question. Ma'am. Hi, thank you guys yeah. for being here. Um, a little less than two years ago, I was diagnosed with PTSD, depression, and anxiety after a very traumatic event occurred. Um, since then, I've been very vocal about my experience. And after speaking to others, one huge issue I see is lack of understanding amongst our families, friends, coworkers, et cetera. Um, even the justice system in um, cases like mine where we have to press charges due to domestic violence. So my question is, um, well, there's this idea that mental illness isn't real. So how can we better educate others um, to the reality of mental illness and how how strong of an impact it can have on our lives. Chairman Coleman? Um, be honest. That's, that's the first thing. 
And when somebody says, well, again, that just shake out of it, say, okay, let me tell you how I was feeling when I was about to commit suicide, and I'm going to take you through that. And no matter how I knew, I knew it was a bad thing to do and everything else, but I could not change the, 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 the disease or the illness from compelling me to do what I wouldn't do normally. And I think that's really important. But also explain to them that, again, counseling, medication, you know, these are, would, you, would they do the same thing to you if you had cancer? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's the same thing. So now these are illnesses that we've actually made a lot of progress in. So that's what I would tell you. And, but I also would say, be careful. Uh, the people who really never want to understand don't have a conversation with them, particularly at work. I mean, I just, just don't. Uh, the other piece that I think has been a problem is the mass shootings by people who have turned out to have mental illness. That set us back. Uh, we were making very good progress, but now people associate certain illnesses with, with killing and danger. And, and so that, from the early part of my, you know, doing this, we were making real good progress. Then Aurora, Sandy Hook, Columbine, you know, it, it really set us back. Thank you. Ma'am? Hi, my name is Elizabeth Parrish, and um, my question is in, in regards to how the mental health community is working with the foster care system. Um, my, my, my main question is, uh, I was just at the foster care panel, and something that they talked about was a, a lot of the children that they're looking at who are abused, their parents had some varying degree of mental health disorder. So uh, what are you guys doing to sort of look at your patients who are mentally ill and see, okay, do you pose a risk to your families? What can we do to help you so that you know, we can protect you and your family and, and keep that family whole? Okay, well, let me tell you something, something that, that we did. We, I put a rider, I was telling Ford about this, in the appropriations bill that with the new opioid dollars for substance abuse, and this would apply also to mental health, two-thirds of the children that are in, uh, in foster care are there because their parents have substance abuse and, and mental health, health illness issues. And, and so it's very important for us to identify those individuals. Well, there are these things that we call family courts. And individuals who have had problems with alcohol and drugs have been arrested. We can intervene at that point because they haven't lost their kids. Um, and, and so I think it's very important. So we've skewed some of the money to deal with those issues in, in CPS. In County Affairs, we did a, an interim uh, study on that, and it's the pipeline that we need to deal with. The number of kids and parents that are coming through, through that pipeline, and it's, we have to bring it down because it's, 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 it's increasing. Chairman yeah, or I, I chairwoman? Think the the uh, other thing that is recent is that we're strengthening and, and supporting more frequent checks, uh, screenings for mental health issues in the children. Yes. That's right. um, and so that is now being you know more inclusive in their wellness checks and at a more frequent stage and, or, or occurrence. And that, that will help, um, you know, eventually as well as that is being implemented. I think that will help not only the, the children and, and certainly um, you know, we, as I mentioned earlier in the realm of education, I know it's not real possible, not, it's not possible to mandate that it happen, but we do see lots of incidents across the state where children are having some issues um, as a result of issues within their family. 
Um, and so, you know, when they're moving through the foster care system, uh, we need good, you know, folks obviously working at Child Protective Services and, and we need the doctors to be aware for these enhanced screenings, but we also need to make resources to the extent we can available to families um, because sometimes treating the whole family will result in better care and outcomes for the children and I think we've seen that. And that's one thing with the, the pilot project that's um, beginning in El Paso is that the services will be for the entire family. You can't treat the child successfully if their family doesn't understand um, what, you know, what their um, illness is and be supportive for them. So it takes services to the entire family to make that a successful outcome. So it will include the whole family. Thank you for your question. Sir? Hi, my name is Gary Brown and I work for our county commissioner in Williamson County. And um, we're having a lot of discussions around these very issues. And um, you know, our jails are often the largest mental health facilities. And uh, so how do we make that not the case, even though we do have you know, divergent programs? And on a related matter, does Texas have a shortage of beds at mental health facilities and how do we fix that? Chairman Price. <laughs> yes and yes. Uh, let me say no. <laughs> uh, we, we do have, um, I guess, the answer to your first question, um, which was, um, you know, obviously county jails, you know, we, we and Chairman Coleman worked uh, really hard uh, along with other members of the select committee between the 84th and 85th session about, you know, what do we do to address some of these issues, just like the ones you're discussing in law enforcement and county jail, I mean, you know, jailers and county judges and commissioners all over the state, and it didn't matter where you traveled. Um, and we talked to a whole host of them. Um, they, they all said the same thing. And so as a result of hearing that, uh, one of the things that resulted uh, this past session was um, Senate Bill 1326. And so, we, for instance, uh, Class B misdemeanors uh, or misdemeanants can, uh, can be diverted uh, and won't spend time in jail where then they get, for instance, if they're in there and can't stand trial for, for uh, reason that they're not competent, um, then you know, they wait and languish in, in jail until the bed space opens up and our forensic population is so much higher now than it's ever been. I think it's, it's in excess of 50%, 52, 53% now of all uh, residents in our state hospitals. So, you know, the, the backlog there has caused them to wait. And then when they go and confidence is restored and they come back to jail, well, time has been served. They didn't get any real treatment. Then they're released and they cycle back through the county jail. So I'm telling you something you've probably seen a lot um, in your county because everybody has. So I think the passage of that bill will keep them from cycling through unnecessarily just that way. And we also did some things um, with respect to our, our appropriations that I think will end up, yes, opening beds up and increasing capacity statewide. And as we, um, as we uh, fix some of our state hospitals, increase capacity, and start looking at the patient mix on where we have patients um, so that forensics and maximum security folks are maybe uh, more centrally located or, or located in urban areas and, and, and maybe, or I'm, excuse me, maybe in more rural areas or just start thinking creatively instead of doing things the way we've always done them. Um, we're gonna do a good job with that. So all these things working together, I think are gonna help the capacity issue long-term. Um, and, and it's not gonna happen overnight, but I do think this is a fantastic start. So it will help folks stay out of county jail, relieve the pressure there but it will also, um, uh, I hope, increase some of our beds capacity. We've increased it just by numbers, but I think 
you know, we don't have enough money to actually create enough beds. And really, we want to we want to treat them. We want to keep them out. You know, instead of addressing it on the back end, like you said, you know, we wait till DEFCON, you know, five before we actually sometimes deal with something. So I'm really um, very optimistic about the results. We'll be monitoring that very carefully. I think it will have long-term impacts that are very favorable for the counties. Great. If, I can, if I can add something, call Bear County. Uh, they are the gold standard on all of this. They reduced their county jail census by 800 beds a couple of years ago while everybody else's census was going up. And I think it's important because of the Haven for Hope, they have these restoration centers where that's where people are diverted to and then they go into care and then the peace officers can go back to work. But call them because you'll be very surprised that what they're doing is working. And it's scalable. It, is scalable. it definitely is. It doesn't is have to scalable. be replicated, but you can certainly do things depending on the size of the county and the resources you have that will be very effective. And the grants that, that Chairman Price put together can help you do those things. Great. It's so just also you can't have this conversation without having the housing conversation. That's correct. Mm -hmm. They got to go together. Yeah. <laughs> Sir? My name is David Faraby. I'm a 12-year veteran of the Texas House, uh, happily not serving now. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, but also a 30-year veteran of the health insurance business as an insurance agent. And, and so my question is around mental health parity. In my years in the Texas legislature, I had an opportunity to, to bring forward a bill that would, was in opposition to my industry that did not think that mandated benefits and mental health parity was a good idea. Uh, obviously, it would have an effect on overall price. Uh, so, Chairman uh, Price, you're a breath of fresh air. Uh, I say that from my heart. But uh, here's my question. There's always that. Yeah. Uh, we're staring Graham Cassidy in the eye, and uh, for the next week to come, uh, it may become a reality, and, and we find it at our doorstep. We're now we in Texas get to make that decision again. What is in a health insurance policy that we all purchase? Uh, my fear is that mental health parity will be lost among other valuable mandated benefits that the industry did not have the courage to include. Uh, but specific to mental health parity, uh, would you tell us we should call the folks in Washington and urge them to vote against uh, mental or against Graham Cassidy, or do you have the confidence that if it came back to Texas and we got the design, the uh, health, the mental health benefit that our Texans could buy through a health insurance policy, it would be as robust as the Affordable Care Act provides? Well, the the reality is Texas has been, and you know this, having been a veteran of the House and been interested in this policy area for a long time. Uh, Chairman Coleman passed a parity bill years ago. I mean, you know, long before, I think, uh, as someone said the other day, it was cool, you know, and that was, <laughs> that, was uh, that was, that was, that showed the commitment that I think the state had to, to uh, doing the right thing with regard to mental health parity and insurance coverage. And this bill that passed in the 85th session, HB 10, that we both had the opportunity to, to work on together to pass, um, you know, extended and strengthened that coverage to, to all plans. And, it, you know, my feeling is, it, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter what happens at the federal level, what, what the state of Texas will do, because obviously there's a ripple effect there and there's, there's, there's impacts. Um, but 
with respect to, you know, none of our bills mandated or expanded coverage. But what we did say is if a health provider, a health insurance provider, wants to provide coverage for behavioral health, and frankly, they all do, mostly, and you know this, I mean, it's good for business, it's good for employers, it's good, people want that coverage. The, the hard thing has been that there's a difference between buying coverage and getting treatment. Mm -hmm. And so there has been a tremendous difficulty um, enforcing the, the coverage that you've thought you had or do have. And, and so... Um, enforcing I, I, it in the way of providers accepting it? Yes, or, yeah. providers accepting it or navigating um, the, the exactly difficulties right. involved in, in you know, appealing a, a decision or what you need to do. So doing what we did in the 85th by creating an ombudsman at the state level that's going to help everybody, instead of calling the federal government, which prior to the passage of HB 10, you would have had to have done to get some help in that field, having that office at the state level um, requiring that qualitative and quantitative treatment limitations be the data be collected and that that be enforced um, we're, you know the federal government can change their policies but the state of Texas that won't affect what we're doing right here so if a provider has coverage and they extend it to their insureds uh, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that there is parity in that coverage and that you know the diabetes patient and the depressed patient um, both receive parity in the coverage that they are going to have, and it's really easy on the quantitative side because you know if your copay is the same as you know it should be. It's really difficult on the qualitative side to know if if the the decisions that are being made and the pre-authorization requirements and all that stuff is is uh, is being treated you know uh, fairly, and and so I think having this office will help that. Um, I, you know, I hesitate to suggest anybody, you know, take a position one way or the other because everybody's position is going to be different. And, and I am concerned about, you know, what could happen. But I do believe that no matter what happens at the federal level, we're going to be strong on this issue in the state. And if I may add, I don't think John McCain's going to let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> we have about five minutes left, so one to two more questions, ma'am. Uh, my name is Caitlin, and my question is very similar uh, to the gentleman before me. So I work at Kerrville State Hospital uh, with the 46B population, those who are incompetent to stand trial. And three out of the 10 patients or so uh, will never regain competency. So they are basically stuck in the system at the state hospital and serve basically a life sentence. Whereas if they were to gain competency, um, they would have, a judge would have probably let go some of those charges or they would have been on probation. Um, obviously lesser than the extent of staying at the state hospital for the rest of your life. Um, so I just didn't know there are some states who have a three-year um, kind of term limit because if you don't regain competency within three years, they're usually let go because you're never going to regain competency. So I just didn't know y'all's thoughts or opinions on that being something Texas would be interested in. Um, I know that this population is obviously very small, um, but they do get stuck in that loop of just living the rest of their lives on the state hospital grounds. Who wants to... Feel I, 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 <laughs> clearly it's a problem and, and Chairman Price has done a good job of looking how we fix that and um, and I think his plan to deal with how we using our state hospitals appropriately for the populations and then doing some stuff internally but we have to look at see if that something like that works because but again our, our just our commitment is to the public and their safety Sir? Hi, a couple of you mentioned the lack of psychiatrists or psychologists in certain areas of the state. 
And so I was just wondering if there's any kind of efforts or programs out there that are working on getting mental health professionals into some of these underserved areas. Yeah. There's, there's quite a bit of different things going on. I mean, one thing that's new is the inclusion of uh, licensed chemical dependency counselors in the student loan repayment program so that encourages them to work in underserved, medically underserved areas. And that will help in the treatment of substance abuse and, and encourage the workforce enhancement, I think, in those areas. Um, telemedicine, obviously, very important. Uh, the bill that passed this session will allow uh, much more consistency and stability in the reimbursement through insurance of telemedicine services. Um, so that is important because previously it wasn't the cost of the hard hardware and software, it was the actual, you know, physical cost of reimbursing a physician for their time. And, and where we have, uh, I think, over 100 and, what is it, 85 counties out of the 254 that don't have a single psychiatrist licensed that, that live in those counties, we, uh, we need to, you know, we need to have more availability. That doesn't increase the numbers, but we definitely need more access. And then we funded more money with GME, graduate medical education slots, um, trying to encourage more uh, folks to train and do their residencies in psychiatry. And I, I am one that, and I think Chairman Coleman would agree with this, that really would like to see as much collaboration between, for instance, our state hospitals and treatment centers and our, our programs with uh, medical schools and health science centers and areas where that makes sense yes. as we can, because that's already going on to some degree at UT Southwestern and, and uh, University of Texas in Houston, I think, uh, yes. as well. And that's been successful, but the more we can do along those lines to encourage uh, folks to enter the field, the better. We have taken those steps very recently, and I suspect that will continue. Well, and it, and it we, takes, it, it's a, there's a gap. So just real quickly on the programs that you start with, the graduate med medical education enhancement, there's a four-year gap before that creates a psychiatrist who can go in the community. So um, kudos to you guys for, being, for putting that into the, the state's budget and doing it through the Department of State Health Services, but we're still a year or two away from that actually producing psychiatrists above and beyond what were there before. But again, it, it'll slowly start to happen as, we, as these things mature. Well, the next time you see former Representative Susan King, thank her. Well, and that, I know oh, that we have um, the Hogg Foundation, the Paso Del Norte Health Foundation, um, University of Texas El Paso, and Texas Tech um, Health Science Center El Paso have a consortium for the El Paso Psychology Internship uh, Consortium. And, the, those four entities have come together and um, provide that um, fourth year, third year, fourth year um, internship clinical rotation for um, psychologists so that we can have more psychologists, um, hopefully that we can convince to stay in our communities. And then we have been working with um, both universities and our community college for the allied health fields because we, I mean, we need psychiatrists, we need psychologists, but we need all of the licensed social workers, counselors, therapists. So, you know, we need to, to work in all those areas to, to beef up our workforce. That's going to have to be our, our final note. We're, we're out of time. Apologies. feel like we maybe just scratched the surface, but let's have a, another round of applause for our panelists. Thank you all.